This is hell. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And here on This is Hell, we have had many, many conversations of late around the concept of degrowth. That is for us to survive the current crises of climate change as well as the pandemic and its repeated variants and surges, all of which promises a future of more crises of capitalism, that we may need something completely different, different, an alternative like degrowth. It is these crises that makes uh, capitalism appear vulnerable and creates the possibilities of alternatives, alternatives like degrowth, which dismantles the current system of constant economic growth that got us to this point of this crisis in the first place, these many crises in the first place. But how can we get all those together who would likely want to pursue degrowth, which could include, as our guest today suggests, nature lovers, care providers, local governments, diverse workers' organizations, fighters for environmental justice, overworked professionals, vegans, hippies, families with children, biking fanatics, unemployed, people employed in exploitative and harmful jobs, climate refugees, back-to-the-landers, senior citizens, people engaged in anti-colonial and anti-capitalist movements, members of low-income communities, feminists, and anti-racists. And what about the word degrowth, which may sound, uh, may not sound all that appealing to so many who could actually benefit from degrowth? We will continue our ongoing conversation on degrowth in a few minutes when we have the return of Susan Paulson, who will be on to discuss her contribution to the new book, Degrowth and Strategy. Susan's essay is entitled The Potential of Strategic Entanglements. Susan is professor of the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida. Susan studies and teaches about gender, class, and ethno-racial systems interacting with bodies and environments. She has researched and taught in Latin America for 30 years, 15 of those living in South America among low-income, low-impact communities. Susan is currently studying changing masculinities among men who perform painful and dangerous labor in extractive industries. Susan was on our show back in November of 2020, along with Georgos Kalas, to discuss their book, The Case for Degrowth, which they co-authored with Giacomo Dalisa and Federico De Maria. Susan's recent books also include 2016's Masculinities and Femininities in Latin America's Uneven Development. You can find all of our conversations on degrowth, including our November 2020 talk with Susan and uh, Georgos, by going to thisishell.com and searching on the word degrowth. And despite it being swelteringly hot outside right now on the first day of summer, uh, I think I'm coming down with a cold, which seems odd. And uh, even worse than that, Dan Hill, a producer who was supposed to be producing today, apparently his wife has tested positive for COVID. So Dan is not uh, with us today. Instead, producing is Sebastian Vupper. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Seb, what's new by you? Oh, just returned from a weekend in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. Are you being sarcastic? Uh, a little bit. I don't know. I mean, Columbus has like parts that are actually legit beautiful. Um, but then it's also like one of these weird, essentially Midwest metropolises where you're just like, what is going on here? I mean, we we went to a part that's called German Village. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like a, a part of the town that it, that has been completely missed by urban renewal. So it's 
very authentic, very still there uh, in, in, in the way that it had been constructed in the, in the 19th century. Uh, I mean, of course, today it's gentrified to hell and back. Um, but Being German, is it kind of kitschy? Yeah, a little bit, but in a in a mostly in a good way. It's very green, very very nice. Um, but I don't want to even imagine what the house prices would be there. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things about uh, uh, the Ohio State University campus in Columbus, the, the Ohio, State. Ohio State University <laughs> campus, uh, is that uh, it has an amazing collection of modern architecture dating from like the nineteen eighties up until now. It's really. Uh, very odd place to find such modern architecture. So last night out, I went out on the back deck of our apartment, which overlooks uh, Warren Park over here in the Chicago neighborhood of West Ridge to enjoy the weather after the sun had set as well as a perfectly cold beer. I was enjoying that as well. And suddenly the entire deck started swaying, which it's not supposed to do. And as I had not drunk more than a couple ounces of beer yet, I knew it wasn't me. Apparently, my downstairs neighbor is worse at physics than even I am because he had put up a hammock at the point where the deck is farthest from the building, which anchors the entire deck, and he began to swing, causing the entire deck to sway. And I freaked out. I yelled, whoa, like a person who is experiencing vertigo. And he suddenly stopped swinging. But for a few seconds there, I was certain the whole thing was going to go tumbling down, crushing my downstairs neighbor. And who knows what would have happened to me. But more importantly than me falling three floors and potentially crushing my neighbor to death. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from Helen? Share with us a couple of our listeners' answers. Uh, this week's question from hell was, uh, I wrote this question from hell on the highway. Really? <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, Richard and I noticed that while we were <laughs> sharing it yesterday. Uh, this week's question from hell is, what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? Uh, and we got a lot of, a lot of bangers here, <laughs> as the kids say. <laughs> Uh, Jack B says, my new drag show at my local library paid for in cryptocurrency. Too soon, question mark? <laughs> no, that is not too soon. That is an exceptional answer to this week's question from L, Jack. Bodan G says, get your abortions right here. Oh, no, man. <laughs> Rudy B says, discount presidential pardons. Get rid of those trumped up charges without, with our blowout sale on Clinton era merchandise. <laughs> that should come with a 1-800 number as well. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Uh, Matthew M. says, Dibs isn't cool. Just figure it out. <laughs> That's a Chicago joke. Yeah. Uh, Aaron D. says, QAnon Warehouse. All your QAnon clothing needs at discount prices. We <laughs> love the way you think. Disclaimer, all thinking not involved. Uh, actual thinking not involved. Certain restrictions, like the man on lemmings, apply. All products made in China. Okay, one more, and then we'll move on. Uh, no Walk Wolf says, Holy S., We've got a billboard. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice. Those are some banger answers. Uh, wins your choice of whatever this is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st uh, century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our 
stuff right now by going to thisisell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Sebastian will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Susan on degrowth. So I recently uh, received the latest edition, the June 16th issue of the small town northern Michigan newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter, Houghton Lake Resorter, a subscription to which I uh, received as a holiday gift late last year, and the editorial pages Your Opinion section featuring letters from locals uh, featured a letter by Gary S. in Prudenville, which the resorter headlined Immutable Right, immutable as in unchanging over time or unable to change. And while I realized that the letter writer was citing President Biden saying the Second Amendment is not an immutable right, I couldn't help but think that whoever came up with the headline was referring to Gary S. of Prudenville's right-wing politics, which have not changed over the time I have been a subscriber or that Gary uh, S. of Prudenville has the has no ability to change his right-wing beliefs. For instance, Gary writes that, quote, we are in the jaws of government under despotic leadership that creates or uses an, any opportunity to destroy our Judeo-Christian foundation. While I'm no fan of the Biden administration, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it was... It is despotic, which means that it is led by a ruler who holds absolute power, typically one person who exercises it in a cruel or oppressive way, and the success Republicans have had using the filibuster to derail Biden's agenda and that of two senators from his own party to kill the political agenda upon which uh, Biden campaigned upon uh, pretty much displays that President Biden does not have anything close to absolute power. As for the Judeo-Christian Foundation of the United States, Maya Brett summed it up well in a May 2021 article at Salon.com where she wrote, first of all, Judeo-Christian values is a dog whistle that erases Jewish values by subsuming Judaism into Christianity. It also excludes other religions, particularly Islam. When politicians claim Judeo-Christian values, they're almost always describing Christian values, but want to pretend they are being inclusive of Jews. And however you feel about Salon.com as a media outlet, you, you, know, you just don't really need a second reason that shows the U.S. was not founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs, when the first is there's really no such thing as Judeo-Christian beliefs, and it's just a way of saying it was founded on Christian beliefs, which it was not, as the most influential framers of the Constitution apparently believed in theistic rationalism, a hybrid of natural religion, Christianity, and rationalism, in which rationalism is the predominant element. You know, the kind of rationalism that believes opinions and actions should be based on reason and knowledge rather than on religious belief or emotional response. And there's a lot of emotion and not much evidence in Gary S. of Prudenville's letter in the Your Opinion section of the Resorter, so his particular religious beliefs do not align with those of who he would call the Founding Fathers. But I certainly would not, uh, because such a, I wouldn't call them the Founding Fathers, because such a title expresses the belief that they believe their words were, in fact, immutable, which they did not, as they allowed for things like constitutional amendments and could actually, that, that could actually overrule the Constitution, the words they wrote themselves. However, 
That comes as no surprise, as Gary S. of Prudenville is part of the immutable, never-changing, and unable to change far right. But that's not why I am sharing Gary S. of Prudenville's letter. After all, it's the same old, same old, from the same old, same old far right. What bothered me in his letter is something Gary writes about Chicago that is clearly not true, and very much false, and is derived from what he has seen and heard and read within far-right media, including the way in which Chicago, where I'm sitting at this moment, where I've lived since 1987, has been depicted as a nightmarish hellstorm of gun violence. Yes, there is gun violence in Chicago. There's no doubt about that. But Gary's ill-informed description is clearly sensationalized by the reactionary media he consumes. Gary writes, the left has no reason, or has, sorry, the left has no passion for our babies. Over a hundred have been gunned down in Chicago today. Gunfire echoes throughout blue cities daily with the sounds of opening day gun, or deer season. Gunfire echoes throughout uh, blue cities daily with the sounds of opening day deer season. Well, I'm certain Gary S. of Prudenville is not listening at this moment. I wish he was because I'd like to ensure him it never sounds like the opening of deer season in Chicago ever. Here in Chicago, we never have the sustained nearly month-long firing of guns, especially when you include the two weeks of legal deer hunting with muzzle loaders. The muzzle loader is one of the things that we don't worry about in Chicago when it comes to gun violence, despite this clear hatred toward Chicago, Gary S. claims mental illness has seemed to heighten of late. Gary then asks, could hate speech be the reason? Well, Gary, yes, it it can. As the New York Times front page reported earlier this week, the gun manufacturers have shifted their marketing campaigns to focus not on hunting, but on self-protection from the scary other, you know, like people here in Chicago. So here's what I've done. I've written a letter to the editor of the Houghton Lake Resorter that will hopefully be published in the Your Opinion section, setting Gary S. of Prudenville straight on how I would much rather be sitting on my porch here in Chicago. Granted, it's on the third floor and there are, and I live in a neighborhood uh, which is not as bad as most when it comes to gun violence, uh, but I do not live in what people living in many other neighborhoods would consider as safe. Even Gary likely would not consider my neighborhood safe, but I would be rather I would rather be sitting on my porch at any hour of the day or night than sitting on a porch near a northern Michigan forest during deer hunting season. I'll be reading that letter to the resorters your opinion section on this week's Patreon podcast, which you can hear live this Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a Patreon subscriber. Not only get this week's monologue but over 200 more that are currently not available anywhere else online, as well as over 200 classic interviews from our 26 years of archives that are also unavailable anywhere else online. As a Patreon subscriber, you will also get a secret code word that gives you a discount on all of our merchandise, a discount that is actually more than your first month of subscribing. So again, our business model kind of sucks. Later this week, we will be revealing the classic interview we'll be sharing on Patreon. While I am not sure which one it will be, what I can tell you is as we approach the 4th of July, all our classic interviews featured on Patreon will be conversations that we have had on or near the 4th of July that are not the kind of, let's say, patriotic discussions you likely hear here in the United States as we are busy celebrating Independence Day by blowing stuff up real good. Coming up, Susan Paulson returns to continue our ongoing discussion on degrowth. 
Sebastian will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? We'll also hear from Sebastian, who is a historian, and he will be speaking atop Seb's Soapbox, his weekly discourse on history and the necessary historical context needed to understand what the hell is happening today. And we'll tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. People with divergent backgrounds and interests with worldviews that may not otherwise seem compatible could find common ground within the concept of degrowth. In fact, many may be engaging in practices that can contribute to degrowth at this very moment without even knowing it, including engaging in societal evolution, here to help us have a better understanding of degrowth and how we might work together toward degrowth. Susan Paulson returns to This Is Hell to discuss her contribution to the new book, Degrowth and Strategy. Susan's essay is entitled, The Potential of Strategic Entanglements. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Susan. Thank you, Chuck and Sebastian. It's great to be back with you. And I love listening to your show. The inimitable mix of entertainment and moral outrage keeps me going every week. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, that's the inimitable mix in my brain, and I'm struggling with it on a daily basis. Susan, <laughs> you write uh, of degrowth and strategy, the compilation that you have contributed to. This book brings together explorations of strategy and plurality to address a vital question. How can progress towards degrowth goals be strengthened and coordinated without sacrificing the diversity of positions and approaches involved. Degrowth horizons are broadened by the celebration of a rainbow of knowledges, cosmologies, and vital worlds conceptualized as components of a pluriverse. Uh, However, in contexts where institutional power favors authoritative knowledge and where political successes are bolstered by unified positions, plurality raises all kinds of challenges. What does it reveal about the current conversation on degrowth, the conversation that takes place in degrowth and strategy. What does that diversity of positions and approaches involved reveal about the discussion on degrowth and degrowth more degrowth more generally? What does that reveal about our current conversation on degrowth when there are so many different viewpoints on it? Great. Well, I, I, Chuck, I love the quip you read in the beginning of all the many people we imagine may engage and benefit from movements towards degrowth. And those are people in really different situations with different desires, different powers, different discourses. And it's hard, uh, it's hard to collaborate and communicate. And that's not accidental. One of the things we're really trying to address in in degrowth is understand the systemic hierarchies that work to exclude and and separate us from each other to make it difficult to find common ground and and organize. Um, Even though intellectually, I I imagine that there's a lot of common ground there. Um, So we're we're struggling with that, um, specifically at the point of strategy. I think in the past 20 years, many of us have been learning continually across differences from each other about sacrifices in the current trends of growth and about analyses um, of what's happened historically and what we can build for the future. But we're also frustrated in that it's it's quite difficult to find to find ways to move forward that that feel satisfying, that feel impactful, that seem to change 
the course of history. So the debate that you've caught us on in this book is how can we how can we strategize ways to move towards our shared goals um, that yeah that that feel like they're having more a, a more of a common outcome. And I'll just say what those shared goals are. Um, one is decrease of the use of material and energy by wealthy economies every day. The second one is to reduce our obsession, our personal and cultural obsessions with growth. And the third and more important, most important is to build convivial societies based around care and equitable well-being. So uh, again, for those who uh, may not have heard the discussions that we've had on degrowth, why do you believe degrowth is necessary? Well, um, yes, there's a famous quote that says, um, <laughs> well, um, anyone who thinks that endless growth is possible in a finite world is either crazy or an economist. <laughs> it's a simple, it's a simple thermodynamics question, right? Every, every activity that humans do as part of our economy uses material and energy, transforms material and energy in ways that create entropy. And when there's a balanced cycle of a regeneration of resources, um, what we call nature, um, that's fine. But when we accelerate and grow economies to the point where we're transforming more and more material and energy every day, burning more fossil fuel, cutting down more trees, mining more minerals, the entropy gets out of control, causing disequilibrium in earth systems. Everyone's heard about climate change, which is the most uh, saluted one lately, but also biodiversity collapse, uh, ocean acidification, uh, loss of freshwater desertification, are results of these earth system shifts that are, are provoked by this excess entropy that's a direct result of expanding economic activity of, of humans, of certain humans, right, of, of the wealthiest humans on earth. And you point out that to date, degrowth alliances have foregrounded principles and processes, including participatory democracy, inclusion, commoning, sufficiency, conviviality, and care. Contributors to degrowth and strategy explore strategies to accelerate progress towards desired outcomes by expanding scales and realms of action, interconnecting different kinds of struggle, and establishing shared frameworks, goals, or measures of progress. So participatory de democracy, inclusion, commoning, sufficiency, conviviality, and care, these are not the uh, characters or traits of neoliberalism or its focus on individual liberty or profits before people, or the idea that there's no alternative or another Margaret Thatcher quote that there is no such right. thing as society. So is degrowth then, is it necessarily socialist? What do you mean by socialist? See, that's the that's the bigger question. I think that you answered that question by asking what is meant by socialist. So, so what uh, by something that is more uh, collaborative, which is a word you've already yes. used, but something that is that yes. is more of a collective response, and not Certainly. focused on the individual liberty right. aspect. Yes, my colleague anthropologists consider that 
we're living in a moment now that's pretty much by far the most extremely individualistic moment in human history. The way Homo sapiens survived and evolved over hundreds of thousands of years has been to work as communities. Our, 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 we're not very strong or quick or powerful to fight against other creatures and, and take care of our needs. We do it by inventing languages, kinship, technologies of, of producing and sharing food and, and childcare and other things. Um, that's how humans have survived. And in the last, really last century, we've pushed ourselves into a bizarre situation where individuals, individuals are expected to look after themselves and everything is sort of commoditized, right? We sell our labor and then we buy what we need rather than sharing as, even as families and communities. And in every wealthy country in the world, the most common type of household is actually the uni-person household. In the US, it's 27%. In some European countries, it's 30 or even 40% of households have only one person. So that's really useful for the growth of the capitalist society and economy, right? We, first of all, we, we buy more houses. Everyone has their own refrigerator, their own heater, their own TV, et cetera. But more importantly, we're isolated and vulnerable to be used as workers, as tools, as consumers, as producers in machines, in ventures that's bigger than us, because we're not tied into those commons life ways that humans have traditionally lived in, right? And so, yes, if socialism is about moving towards more commons management and reconnecting with each other around living and regenerating our lives, I would say, yes, communalism, social life, whatever you want to call it. Many people in degrowth use the word conviviality which basically lives co-living, right? To live together um, as, a, as a process that we try to practice in our movements and our work and a goal towards which we're building societies. And you also point out that uh, recognizing that it is unlikely and perhaps not even desirable for degrowth to develop into a banner of massive mobilization or an umbrella uh, coordinating uh, diverse movements, uh, this uh, chapter of the book that you wrote explores possibilities of strategic entanglements. And I found this fascinating. You write that the metaphor alludes to quantum entanglement, a physical phenomenon that occurs when a group of particles are generated, interact, or share spatial proximity such that the quantum state of each particle cannot be described independently of the others. So can completely disparate points of view, can they work together in these kinds of uh, strategic entanglements, or at least uh, uh, points of view that we may think are completely disparate? Can they work together in this kind of entanglement? One can only hope. We need to have faith. <laughs> yes. Um, the idea of strategic quantum entanglements is that it's different from the model, the kind of liberal model of everyone's welcome inclusivity. You've heard people say, well, I don't care what color you are, what gender, what sexuality, everyone's welcome here and we're all treated the same. There are certainly places for that, but that's not what we're talking about. This entanglement on differences that you describe, these deep differences, it requires that we heighten our awareness and our attention to those differences to say, wow, 
you're like in your introduction today, you're Jewish, I'm Muslim. You're wealthy, I'm poor. You're a man, I'm a woman. You're straight, I'm gay, etc. Talk recognizing those different positions, political positions, as part of the relationship. Again, it's different from the kind of rainbow hugging each other, like we're all the same. It's actually being often quite painfully aware that every collaboration involves power differences. And that if we want to listen to each other across differences and find common ground to move towards mutually satisfying futures, we need to be brave enough to name those differences. Um, and I, I just want to say that people in degrowth have been very concerned about the dangers of allying with politicians or movement that might co-op degrowth. Many of the 60s and 70s radical environmental impulses and ideas got sort of co-opted by sustainable development that put it all into a, a new way of propping up capitalist growth and inequality, right? And so people are afraid of that. But I also push my deep growth colleagues to be aware of co-opting others into our mission. That's why I write, you know, degrowth is not going to be the umbrella of every other movement, right? We're not going to be the the caretaker of decolonial feminisms and queer ecologies and all these other people. Rather, think across differences, not as equals, but recognizing we're unequally powered and positioned. How can we make agreements we can learn from each other, or maybe disagree, but learn from each other um, across these differences? Which again, it's, it's, it's hard. It's not something that many of us have been trained to do. And there's very powerful forces trying to reinforce antagonisms and competitions among groups that make it particularly difficult and painful to try. So being that we all live in and are informed by a society with the capitalist growth imperative that you write about and is throughout uh, the whole collection of degrowth and strategy within that system that differentiates people in hierarchical and exploitative ways, how much is society within the current system prepared to understand, let alone embrace degrowth? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, it varies. Um, first of all, I say I'm 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 speaking to you from Europe now, where I've li- I lived. Yeah, maybe half a dozen years altogether. People here, there's much more involvement and awareness of degrowth. There's multiple degrowth master's degrees. You can get a degree in degrowth. The um, New Deal for Europe. There's mo- there's multiple Green New Deals for Europe. But- One of them has uh, degrowth as a key pillar. So it's different from the U.S. My experience in the U.S. is that there's much less familiarity and and a deeper gut reaction against the word degrowth without sort of understanding it. And I think part of that is that for many people in the U.S., the word growth has really been associated with goodness in the sense that God is good. It's, it's uh, you know, I would say sort of God, right? Growth is what keeps us alive. It what looks after people. It's what we should vote for everyone who promises it. It's what I should do with my life is grow my income. And so 
it's a really scary word and that's a problem and i would just comment i mean we have a lot of debates about it and one of the things that i think works is to think about degrowth amongst a larger conversation where degrowth decolonial depatriarchic anti-racism are ideas that are struggling to deconstruct inherited sort of life ways and visions that are deeply within us. And those coexist with more positive impulses. Um, we just published a book a month ago or so called Convivial Futures, which is about how we can build pleasurable sharing lives together. And But those kind of positive moves depend on on degrowing and decolonizing, right? And so it's a sort of complement of, of scary, difficult things that do question and attack inherited structures and positive visions that we build towards and neither of them works by itself. When you were responding to that question and talking about how degrowth is something that is understood in Europe, uh, despite the fact that you are from the United States, uh, you know, it made me think about how here in the United States, not only might we have a negative uh, idea of what degrowth means, maybe, you know, to all of us that might connote something that is negative. It also reminds me of the, the way in which we do not, you know, we might not be discussing degrowth here in the United States, but we don't even discuss neoliberalism. It's like the new right. N-word. You can't talk about it on the, in the media yes. whatsoever. And so people don't even know what the dominant feature is of the political economy that is controlling right. us right now. So yeah. why do you think that is? Why is it that here in the United States, we cannot even use the word neoliberalism and we cannot have conversations about degrowth? Yeah, I think it's part of a historic process um, there's several strands of that process. One is sort of a global process of depoliticization of the economy and environmental sciences, where it's become presented as a technical expert issue. You know, neoliberal economics, whatever, though, you know, those are the experts doing their thing, um, and the scientists also. And so it's a depoliticization that doesn't let us debate about policies and understandings of economics and ecology. But in the US, um, my experience, I'm, I'm 60 years old. I grew up in learning how to hide under my desk because the Russians were going to attack us. And I think part of what happened in the US is there was such an enormous fear of McCarthyism and repression of uh, uh, repression of anything that seemed to be related to socialism or communism. Um, many universities stopped teaching political economy and didn't teach political economy anymore. And if you will, I, I worked, as you said in the introduction, I've lived 16 years teaching and working in South America. All the people, I mean, all the students, they know about Marxism, they know about Gramsci, they study political economy as a unit. And I think it's, it's a different, for me, the experience of teaching there is very different from teaching in the US because I think people that are my generation and younger grew up in a purposely depoliticized world where we 
it was scary to ask questions. I mean, people lost their job for asking questions about the way politics and economics interacted in our society. So that's my take. That's an amazing take. We are speaking with Susan Paulson. She is a contributor to the new book, Degrowth and Strategy. Her essay is entitled The Potential of Strategic Entanglements. You write that the promising news is that possibilities for innovative moves towards degrowth objectives are opened by historical crises, including climate breakdown and pandemics that destabilize established orders. Why do times of crises create opportunities for the consideration of degrowth? Is it simply because the current crises of climate change and pandemics has proven capitalism's own vulnerabilities and failures and needs to be replaced for our very own survival? Is this an opportunity or is degrowth an act of desperation? Yeah, um, <clears throat> all of the above. <laughs> um. I see it the way you do, that the, the pandemic and climate crisis and everything are, are incontrovertible evidence that the path we're on is, is leading in a dangerous direction. I, I don't think that many people see that. I don't think in the US that climate change and the pandemic have convinced a lot of people of that. So I actually think a different there's a, I mean, that is a possibility, but there's something else that we learned from Antonio Gramsci, who talked about how damn difficult it is to question a dominant system because the worldview has been built into our bodies, our beliefs, our desires through the fairy tales we knew as a child, Hollywood movies now, all everything we learn in school. And it's all of a piece. It's, it's really difficult to question things. And when there's a historical crisis, a terrible war, a civil war, a ecological crises, there's cracks in that system that force people out of their sort of safety comfort zone of the, the world they were trained into, right? And as, as Leonard Cohen sang in one of his last songs, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. You also point out that beware, however, that eco-social crises also nourish reactionary alliances. As current troubles threaten the status quo, identity categories are being strategically mobilized to polarize potential allies and limit capacities to envision and enact systemic change. For example, scientists calling to limit CO2 emissions and other forms of ecological damage are construed as elite antagonists to workers demanding jobs and security. Is the greatest challenge to degrowth divisiveness while degrowth depends upon diversity. Is that the difference between a future of degrowth or one that is reactionary, a future that is uh, one of a future of divisiveness and the other a future of diversity? Wow. I agree with you that that divisiveness is the biggest threat. And people involved in degrowth Many of us have faith that thinking and communicating across diversity will allow us to build different systems and different paths, multiple paths, to move history in a different direction. But it's really powerful. As you, as you pick up from the argument, we've just seen the, the anti-vaxxers, the anti-climate change people, the huge reaction against um, 
struggles for racial justice that, you know, passed all kinds of laws to not let people march in the streets and, and whatever, show that there are very strong resistances um, against, um, right, against ways of, of trying to use crises to imagine new futures, right? I think those are reactionary moves that are afraid of different futures and are trying to attack or silence people that are saying there's a crack in the system we're illuminating a new path, let's struggle towards it. People are understandably scared of moving towards a new system. And they say, God damn it, let's just paste up that crack and cover it over and say it's not there and keep the system we have. And you write that uh, they are uh, people who are strategically, uh, they unite under banners of political and economic, uh, political economic stability and defense Amen. of ge geopolitical interests and campaigns to delegitimize calls to curb growth or respond to COVID-19 and address systemic racism and economic inequality. But why would those who want political economic stability want to delegitimize de calls to respond to COVID-19? Wouldn't uh, quickly and decisively responding to COVID-19 reinforce instead of endanger political economic stability? That's what you and I, that's the way you and I see it, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and that would be a case where workers, public health experts, families in different positions could get together across their differences and say, let's look after the health of our community first to keep our economy strong. But you and I know that's not what happened. Every day the headlines would say, there's a quarantine, it's gonna kill the economy. People staying home for one more week is going to crash our GDP. This is terrible. This governor or this mayor that's you know, asked people to to quarantine or, or to be safe is is or not to go to restaurants is is ruining the economy and ruining jobs and attacking you working people so we had these kind of discourses that tried to pit against each other for example public health workers care workers and and maybe restaurant employees or owners um saying you're enemies against each other and that made it um very difficult for our nation in particular for the US to, to respond in, in, in some kind of fruitful way. And I think the, the evidence on the outcome shows that our numbers overall of infections, of deaths, uh, of hospitalization, out, I mean, we're at the top of the heap, right? Per capita, we outcompete every other country in keeping alive a terrible pandemic, partly because of those, of that divisiveness. And you point out that although conservative ideologies portray current roles and relations as determined by nature, and for many of us, they come to feel natural, historical analyses show that they have been created by evolving societies and adapt adapted to uh, support growth. Historical analyses show society as currently structured to support growth because we've chosen this kind of path, not because it is natural. Right. So how do you convince those who actually dismiss historical analyses that the way society is now is not natural? How difficult is it to convince people that this society is not natural? Again, you put your finger on a key point, right? It's really hard because 
we humans are poorest creatures and we internalize the roles and expectations. For example, if you happen to be a person with a male genital apparatus, you grow up thinking you need to be the breadwinner, to be virile, to be manly. You must get cash and support a family. You must sell your labor. And if you're of the female sex when you're born, the, the message that you know you need to regenerate labor by looking after your family with food and healthcare and, and clothing and food and regenerating workers by bearing and raising children. Those roles, they feel so natural. We feel them in our sexual responses. We feel them in our, in our pride and our dignity. And for someone to say, damn, those gender roles were invented or adapted or instrumentalized to facilitate the expansion, the exploitation of, of both men and women in the in the gen, in the accumulation of profit and wealth for other people, right? People, it's hard to tell people that because they feel it in their body. It feels so real and true. The roles. And I think you ask how to convince people. I mean, I'm not sure convincing people is, is the way about it, but there is approach, to, an emancipatory approach of liberating people from some of those norms and expectations. And many people are experimenting with different daily lives, relationships, communities, uh, living groups that help, that offer people to experience in their bodily life emancipatory or different paths away from from received sort of dominant norms of life. And I think that's really liber liberating. And, and maybe that tactical experience is more powerful than sort of convincing somebody that the life they live is, is a historical accident. It's not determined by God or by evolution. So can that kind of uh, societal evolution of gender expectations and relations, can, can that kind of societal evolution happen outside of what other, whatever the dominant political imperative is at the time of that evolution? Because I mean, it seems to be happening while we are under a capital growth imperative. So what does that tell us about that kind of societal evolution of gender expectations and relations when it can actually happen under the capital growth imperative? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, on one hand, I think it's it, it's empowering because it's like we can change, we can experiment, and invent and adapt social systems, kinship systems, gender systems, in ways that empower us to build different economic worlds. On the other hand, I, I, I'm not so sure that the gender systems have been very liberated. I think one thing that's happened for example, is that feminism has been co-opted into neoliberal capitalism to convince that the gender changes needed was that women too should be expected to sell their labor and to earn cash and to you know, contribute to the accumulation of, of profit by the part of corporations. Um, and nobody would be looking after sort of the regeneration of, of homes, the affection, the care, that needed, it would be commercialized, right? Commodified through childcare agencies and takeout foods and things like that. Um, that's been part of major gender changes in my generation. I, I, I'm not sure that that's, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't call that liberation, right? <laughs> because I see it as co-optation by a shifting economic system. Um, but I think there are there are also other changes going on, all kinds of changes, changes of multiple gender and sexual identity and relationships that actually do have potential to be much more transformative and help us create different lives that allow us to build different futures. Yeah, having more women as CEOs of fossil fuel companies is not liberation. Right, exactly. For me, it's not. For for Cheryl, it might be. The lean-in team, it might be. But that's not that's not emancipation in my book. Yeah, I totally agree. And you also write that, to date, much attention to degrowth praxis has focused on local initiatives, such as community gardens, time banks, uh, maker spaces, biker repair cooperatives, lessons from this collaborative experience, including observations of unexpected synergies among local movements that lead to broader changes are applied to challenges of moving towards degrowth in activist communities as well as broader societies. So how necessary and effective are community uh, collaborations like these toward a societal evolution that can be the foundation of a future of degrowth? Because I'm not certain if the people who are actually engaging in these kind of uh, collaborations recognize that this could be a step toward degrowth. Right. Good. Great. I think it's absolutely necessary, but not sufficient. And that's one of the great debates in this book. A lot of people have been thinking about living differently, living in different households, communal living, living with less, working part-time, whatever, as daily experience. Those are absolutely crucial moves to create different common senses and different life ways to build on or recuperate old ones that have been co-opted by this growth. Um, The challenge is that's not sufficient. We also need to change policies. We need to change international conventions and agreements. We need to change the way UN thinks about development. We need to change municipal zoning rules. (laughs) Change has to happen at all kinds of levels. And that's one of the challenges we're talking about in strategic entanglements, because many, as I mentioned before, people in degrowth, they're very wary of getting involved with institutions with government institutions feeling that they'll be co-opted or derailed um and that's a that's a sincere concern and i think it's something i mean if you read the whole book you'll see we're all sort of struggling to figure out how to build how to build the movement on many different scales and and axes of approach in addition to these rich on the ground experiments that have been not all, but much of the meat of degrowth experience so far. And there's been a lot of talk about uh, inequality going back to the Obama administration and President Obama towards the end of his administration talking about inequality. Can we overcome inequality without having policies of degrowth? Is degrowth necessary to overcome inequality? Absolutely. Inequality is totally crucial to the current economic system in every way. North-South inequality allows North to vacuum up resources, material and energy and bodily labor in massive quantities to use for their GDP production. Uh, Racial inequality allows the same within countries and cities. Gender inequality allows men and women to be exploited and used to, to push expansion of 
production and consumption. Um, so we're all part of that. Yeah, our inequalities are necessary for growth. And so, and so it's, it's not an accidental side effect, like, oh, we'll grow more and that will solve inequalities. No, in the current system, there are other moments of history, maybe mid-century US, mid-20th century, where growth coexisted with increasing equality in terms of a difference between rich and poor households, greater number of people being educated, black and white incomes and education, but not in the past 40, 50 years. It has been very clear that creating and exacerbating inequality has been necessary to push the economic growth in this moment in history. And so, right, I don't see any way of getting over, right, putting women as CEOs of Exxon is not going to solve our, our ecological problems. It's also not gonna reduce inequality because inequality is necessary for Exxon to continue profiting. You quote your fellow contributors to Degrowth and Strategy Feminist, ecological economist, uh, Corinna Dengler and gender studies scholar, Lisa M. Seabacher writing, Degrowth is not to be misunderstood as a proposal from the global north imposed on the global south, but rather a northern supplement to southern concepts, movements, and lines of thoughts. It is therefore imperative for degrowth to seek alliances with these southern fellow travelers. So if degrowth is a southern concept and its origins are in the south and not something that is being imposed by the global north, what does that tell us about degrowth? Yeah, um, the word degrowth and the sort of the scientific quantitative studies have largely emerged from European scholarship, right? but there are very strong co-learning and alliances with all kinds of movements in the global south, like Buen Bebir, Sumacausa in, in South America, Ubuntu in South Africa, Ecological Suarez in India, Gross National Happiness in, in Bhutan that have a similar path. And the interesting thing is many of those places, it's not so much changing the course of history as we're trying to do in the US and Europe, but actually regenerating and recuperating really long-standing traditions and values that still coexist in their lives with this kind of colonial capitalism Ten tentacles that have reached into their worlds, right? So it's so fruitful to learn from and with people in these different contexts. And for me, it gives me great hope to see that they've kept alive all kinds of traditions and coexistence with capitalist expansion, which means that we can nurture different ways in coexistence, right? We don't have to kill the monster right off, right? There's different ways of life, different values, relationships that can be recovered, re, re-motivated and adapted to improve our worlds right now. And you point out that participants in the global network, Feminisms and Degrowth Alliance struggle with ways to respond to structural positions while recognizing that not all colonized people, nor all women, all whites, all global north or 
Global South, etc., can be understood as a single position or voice. Although racism has been explicitly recognized by environmental justice scholars and activists, serious work still needs to be done on the roles that racialization and white privilege play in the dynamics that drive growth, as well as in those that may support just and equitable degrowth. To you, what explains why degrowth has not yet seriously considered the roles that racialization and white privilege play in dynamics that drive growth as well as uh, yeah. ways that uh, support degrowth. Why have white privilege and racialization not been considered to the extent that they should when it comes to growth and degrowth? Yeah, that's a, that's a painful question. I mean, certainly people like Alf Hornberg, Andreas Malm have studied very carefully how the racialization of other people during colonization was absolutely crucial to the industrial revolution, right? The co-optation of indigenous lands and of African labor, et cetera, were absolutely crucial to that change that, that sort of provoked this era of fossil fueled industrial growth. Um, so there is that strong understanding as, as part of the degrowth analysis, but it's been very hard to deal with current day racialization and racism. Um, and I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. I would go back to, you know, we've been divided. There's forces that make differently racialized people feel afraid and antagonistic of each other, to have different interests, to get involved in different movements. It's been, it's a, it's a serious challenge. And I would say that many of us see it intellectually as a very important thing, but we have a long way to go in terms of living and learning how racialization works today and how it, how deracialization can be part of degrowth futures. And when I was reading your essay, I was thinking about how we often uh, don't recognize that certain activities, certain campaigns are campaigns that are focused on degrowth. We might just not realize that they are so. You write, uh, valuable lessons can be learned from different logics and dynamics of change making. For decades, for example, small farmers in various parts of the world have collaborated to forge alternatives to the Green Revolution by drawing on local knowledges, ritual agroecology practices, and environmental management regimes less based on the domination of humans over other nature. Slowly through reciprocal visits, participatory gatherings, and other interactions, hundreds of nodes have been woven into horizontal networks of mutual learning and actions such as La Via Campesina and Movement Miento, Agroecologico Campesino uh, Campesina. So is degrowth then is it a, rep, a refutation of impositions by the global north, like the chemical fertilizer-oriented green revolution and its dependence upon agribusiness and the centralization of the agricultural sector under globalization and neoliberalism? And if so, were the farmer protests, for example, in India against the new rules that were to be imposed by the Modi government uh, would that would give control to agribusiness and less to subsistence farmer. Mm -hmm. Was that a, a campaign for degrowth, even if we didn't recognize it as such? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say I don't I don't like to label everything degrowth. Right. Okay. And so maybe we could say, yes, they are moving on pathways parallel with dialoguing with degrowth. Absolutely. I mean, those movements in South America, and actually the whole Via Campesina brings together movements from the entire world, 
basically people that said we want to use transform less matter and energy we don't want to put a, a ton of agrochemicals use a ton of you know fact um, track tractors burning petroleum we want to grow food and regenerate agrosystems in lower impact ways with a lower thermo like thermodynamic cycle and so they're right on target that's exactly what degrowth is moving towards and again in many parts of the world people involved in these agricultural movements it's not that they said oh well we're going to invent a whole new way of life they're like well our grandparents and our great grandparents and our great 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 grandparents did low impact agriculture and regenerated the soil and this new growth model is, is scary and different and harmful so we're going to draw on and adapt these traditions um so for, i mean for me it's a wonderful model to learn on and yeah i i don't want to call i don't want to impose my name on them and call them degrowth but i say they it's a really nourishing pathways um for degrowth thinkers to follow those agro agroecology movements and as you said the the recent farmers in india resisting sort of high-tech modernization trying to be imposed by the modi government one last question for you, Susan. Susan Paulson has returned to This Is Held to discuss her contribution to the new book, Degrowth and Strategy. Susan's essay is entitled The Potential of Strategic Entanglements. Susan was on the show back in November of 2020, along with Georgos Kalas, to discuss their book, The Case for Degrowth, which they co-authored with Giacomo Dalisa and Federico De Maria. You can find all of our conversations on degrowth at thisisheld.com when you search on the word degrowth. One last question for you, Susan. And I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience may hate your response. So degrowth is decolonialism, degrowth is anti-imperialism. Susan, to what extent then is degrowth a class war? Yeah. Um. See, I told you it's the question from hell. It's a great question. It's about class. Class, like gender, like race, has been instrumentalized to exploit and degrade all of us. I think the difference is that in, in, in a more historic sense of the class war idea, it was like, well, the poor people are going to attack the rich people because they hoard the resources and the and, and the comforts, right? I think degrowth helps us see that everyone suffers, that wealthy people are tools of the system and make huge sacrifices to the growth machine in, in, in terms of, of well-being, of, of physical and emotional health, health, uh, community, family, in, in all kinds of ways, right? So it's not just, and it's true that climate change and ocean acidification and desertification have hurt poor people and people from the global south more in the short term, but there's also all kinds of middle-class and wealthy people that are already really suffering from, from forest fires, from heat waves, from floods, um, so I, it is all about class, but again, as I said, with 
the gender, it's not like, okay, women are abused, they need to take the power from men. Men and women have been manipulated with gender roles to be tools of the expansion system. And I would say middle-class, rich and poor have also been manipulated, but they've been divided to see themselves as enemies. And so I think from the degrowth vision, the idea would be to look systemically and say, man, we are all we're all used as part of this system that's driving, you know, our whole society and our globe to, to disaster. Um, so it's a different, it's a different take on class war. So my very, very selfish reasoning for doing this show is to learn every time I have some, a guest on the show. And I've learned a lot from our conversation, not only today, but the one back in 2020 with Giorgos on degrowth. And so I just wanted to thank you so much. Susan Paulson is a contributor to degrowth and strategy. Her essay is entitled The Potential of Strategic Entanglements. So thank you so much. And and I, I would be honored to have you or other uh, contributors to convivial futures on the show in the f- in the future because uh, let's do it. Our listeners, our listeners just love these conversations on degrowth because I think it's a conversation that is just not being had anywhere else here in the United States. So thank you I'm so much. Grateful to be part of it, Chuck. Let's do it. We'll keep the conversation going. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate it, and enjoy your the rest of your day. Okay. Goodbye to you and everyone, all the listeners in Cyberlandia. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Cyberlandia sounds like a really horrible amusement park. Uh, If that conversation with Susan Paulson on degrowth was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks for your support. And again, don't forget, if you do subscribe to Patreon, it's not like you only get last week's Patreon uh, monologue and uh, archived interview. You get hundreds of these, as we have been doing this for several years now. So please show your support by going to patreon.com slash hell. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from Helen. Tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? Uh, And Mark Allen S. says, cheese, guns, duck rides. (laughs) Nice. Kim G. says, 1-800-VAS-ECTO-ME. Eric M. says, come to Indiana, where we got gun stores everywhere. Well, I mean, the billboard would be in Indiana, but anyway, good point taken. Yes. Uh, our own Ronaldo M. says, in quotes, turn off your TV. <laughs> all right. Uh, Laura J. says, all your base are belong to us. <laughs> well, it's an oldie but a goodie. Hmm. Uh, Greg G. says, fireworks, guns, and massage parlors <laughs> open until midnight. Or is that just Indiana? A lot of these are going to be about Indiana. Yeah, I mean, obviously. Um, <laughs> it's it's like shooting fish in a barrel, which is a lot more difficult than you'd think. Mm-hmm. Uh, John T. says, Peruka, so come squeeze our corn. <laughs> um, and Old Sandberg says, no, wait a minute, that's Ole Sandberg. <laughs> okay. um, my bad, Ole. Uh, apparently, the Trump Superstore. Not sure what they carry. Never... 
pop bottles of NJ Champagne, some leases on a soon-to-be-developed swamp uh, in Florida, maybe, really cheap American steak, I don't know, but there's one of them around here somewhere. <laughs> hey, was this the first time, this isn't the first time you've gone uh, east from Chicago through Indiana, is Oh, it? no, oh, no. I was going to say, <laughs> it's quite a culture shock when you go through there. Yeah, 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 it kind of is. Um, I mean, uh, the, the, actually, the, f- the first time I, I traveled uh, there was actually the other way around, uh, because I have family in Indianapolis. Oh, really? Uh, the uh, One of the first times I went through Indiana, I was uh, hitchhiking from uh, the Detroit area to Chicago. Oh, boy. And a woman uh, picked me up, and I said, man, look at all the smoke coming out of those smokestacks in Gary. That's just really frightening to me. And she goes, oh, my dad is the person who's in charge of uh, safety at those uh, facilities right there. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah, did you know 99.9% of what's coming out is just steam from water? And so I said, well, what's the other 0.1%? And that ended the conversation. Mm. (laughs) Death. Uh, So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. As we do each and every week, we'll have the rest of your answers to the question from hell later this week on the show. It's time for Seb's Soapbox, our newest weekly feature here on This Is Hell, when historian and This Is Hell producer Sebastian Vuper shares his thoughts on history as he sees it playing out today. Sebastian. Seb's Soapbox. It's Pride Month. Uh, So, first of all, happy Pride to all of y'all celebrating. Uh, Today, I want to talk about misconceptions about human sexuality across history, or why this whole back-in-the-day people were not as perverted as today is not quite the right way of thinking about these issues. Like, literally everything about human lives, human sexual, like, uh, like literally everything else about human lives, human sexuality also has a history. And like literally everything else about human lives, human sexuality also changes over time, but not necessarily in ways that people might think. People in the past were just as horny and sexually charged as we are today. They did, however, conceive of their own sexualities in ways that are different from the way that we, uh, conceive of these things today. And then there's also the big, big problem that in the field of history, that the field of history as a discipline only came of age in the Victorian era, which ended up with Victorian Victorian morals overshadowing a lot of the deep deeper past uh, for, for quite a long time. History as a specific field is quite young, and only really began to take the shape it's in today in the early 19th century. Before that time, the field of history was more one of philosophical narrative and less of methodological inquiry, based on sources to find out what actually happened in the past. But since this field took shape in the cultural and social context of the 19th century, historians and archaeologists who laid the foundations for the discipline, infused many of those early findings with their inherent biases of their own time and their own cultural contexts. 
And this is nowhere clearer than in the field of sexuality. Uh, the 19th century was in that regard a particularly peculiar time. And hold on to your behinds, because this is going to get a bit meta. Historian of sexuality Helen Lefkowitz Horowitz writes in her Pulitzer Prize finalist 2003 book, Rereading Sex, about how the 19th century in America especially saw a lot of new research into human sexuality that was informed by Enlightenment ideas and the overall thrust of the scientific revolution. Pun kind of intended. Much of this new research is, or rather was, informative of the sexual mores of the Victorian times, as well as of the newfound repression of, sexual, uh, of human sexuality fueled in the United States by the Second Great Awakening, a religious movement that brought us things like the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the like. Research into sexuality at the time came out of a similar direction as contemporary proto-anthropological research that we today understand as scientific racism, or medical research of the time that tried to prove that miasma theory was a thing. And this was people, mostly men, using new scientific-seeming methods to prove all kinds of theories born of their cultural contexts. And this is where we need to talk about the deeper pasts, and why it is important to always consider who writes history. For example, the history of archaeology has several cases of couples buried together that are unearthed, and then after some research into who these people were, uh, it's found out that these couples buried together were of the same biological sex. And then reassessment starts, um, where those same-sex burials are redefined not as a buried couple, but, well, you know, best friends, just bros, gal pals, because, well, the moment in time at which these graves were discovered uh, were ones in which people would not be open to the idea that lovers could possibly be of the same sex. And those moments did not just happen in the Victorian era, but often still pretty close to present day. Uh, and this is what historians call presentism, a sort of inherent bias that is quite persistent when it comes to the history of sexuality, especially. And there are many forms of this of presentism involved in looking at human sexual expressions and experiences in the past. I should add that I personally am not a historian of sex sexuality, nor particularly well-versed in gender studies. I'm just fascinated by the historic presentisms these fields have to grapple with and go against. It bears repeating that the past is a foreign country that in so, so many ways radically differs from the present. But since the past is often perceived of as our past, we often believe that things in the present have been the way they are today for much, much longer than they actually have been. And historical presentisms are a particular conundrum. So let me talk about what presentism means. Basically, in the way that French philosopher and historian Michel Foucault would phrase it, present presentism is when one writes history of the past in terms of the present, as opposed to, uh, to writing the history of the present. And historical presentisms are when we in the present look at past historians who wrote histories of their pasts in terms of their present. Are our heads spinning yet? Yeah, that kind of happens usually once good old Michel rears his bald noggin. 
Gender history and history of sexuality specifically suffer from those presentisms, and many later historians have to clean up long-held misconceptions about deeper pasts that earlier historians got fundamentally wrong. Much of the history of the world before the 19th century suffered because of 19th century historians projecting their own sociocultural contexts back on earlier times. And things get especially odd when we look at the history of homosexuality, as hinted at uh, with the lovers' burials. Like pretty much everything in the world, homosexuality, or rather the concept of same-sex attraction, has a history, which means that homosexuality does indeed undergo quite some changes over time. And this is somewhat difficult to wrap one's head around. Our current idea of what homosexuality is and how uh, this kind of sexual expression differs from heterosexuality is actually quite young, as is the concept of heterosexuality as a thing. Um, and this does not mean that homosexual attraction did not exist before the present moment. However long that present moment might be, it just means that people in the past practiced and perceived of homosexuality, homosexuality different than people do now. The ancient Greeks and Romans and many other cultures did not have the kind of cons concept of homosexuality in the, in the way that we understand it to be today. So there again is a danger of presentism, but this presentism is doubly inflected by past historical presentisms, uh, but also by past oppressions. As gender studies scholar Pamela Geller describes in The Bioarchaeology Bio of Sociosexual Lives, what is needed here is an enlightened presentism that understands the past in its own terms. We, both historians and the broad general public, need to understand that the past and the present have a relational connection, but not a connection that is progressive. The current moment is not the most advanced moment in history just because it is the latest. This becomes extremely clear when looking at the queer lives and cultures just across the 20th century. Uh, for example, historian George Chauncey writes in his excellent 1995 book, Gay New York, about the pre-World War I gay scene in New York City that, for the most part, has been forgotten by history. Chauncey explicitly states in his, uh, that his work aims to dispel a number of presentist misconceptions about gay life before the gay movement of the 60s. Homosexual subculture existed before, uh, before that time, and this subculture was not isolated and was actually quite visible to the public. In New York, this gay subculture even attracted quite the non-gay audience, an approving audience by, at that. And between the turn of the century and the 1930s, New York City had a vibrant gay, gay scene, uh, but the self-conception of the people making up this scene would have been quite different from that of contemporary non-heterosexuals. Non also, the pre-war gay subculture was much stronger integrated into mainstream, mainstream society simply because at the time there was not quite the distinction between homo and heterosexual. Uh, and this strong and clear distinction is much more recent, but due to its strength and prevalence seems to be one of those eternal things that have simply always been there in exactly that form. Which is ha which it has not. Homosexual and heterosexual in the way that these terms are used today and the way they constitute distinct, sharply delineated sexual identities have only been understood in the way they are understood today since roughly the 1930s. And the pre-war gay world was essentially oppressed out of existence and to a large extent out of memory by social and political factors as the homo-hetero spectrum began to emerge as a fast concept especially in American society. 
Um, as, a, as historian Margot Kennedy writes in her 2009 study on state-mandated regulation of homosexuality and quote-unquote sexual deviancy, the suppression began with the sexual mores of the progressive era, so 1896 to 1916. In this era, the state in the United States began turning away openly homosexual immigrants because these people began to be understood as undesirable sexual deviants. And sexual deviancy in this case meant anything that was not same uh, uh, that, that was not heterosexual uh, and that was seen as a personal failing because a man this was mostly men who failed to rein in his own desires in this way was seen as unfit to govern himself and that meant that these men were likely to become a public charge because they were un seen as unfit to live uh, in the united states uh, they were un uh, they were seen as unfit to govern their own sexual practices which meant that they would also be unfit to self-govern their their own labor and therefore would be uh enabled to unable to uh hold down paid work and beyond just the context of immigration homosexuality in the u.s was then increasingly criminalized from the 1930s onward in reaction to the visibility of the gay scene that chauncey described in gay new york after World War II, homosexuality was then also scandalized with the increasing equation of um, homosexual, quote-unquote, deviancy with pedophilia. And this oppression and condemning of uh, the homosexual scene back into the closet was then what ultimately overshadowed the existence of the vibrant gay world um, and the different conceptions of what, you know, like same-sex attraction in the past. And serves as an excellent example of how... Uh, one layer of history, a higher layer of history, so to speak, can obfuscate the deeper ones. Tune in on Friday at 3 p.m. Uh, uh, Central Standard Time, and uh, there I'll talk more about recloseting of, uh, of well, homosexuality, of the conception of homosexuality, and about the pink scare of the 50s that um, has been largely forgotten in favor of the red scare of the 50s. And people can see that at youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996, correct? Exactly. And that's going to be again Friday at 3 p.m. Make sure you check out Seb's Soapbox. And how there about will probably be another fun technical hiccup because I always have fun technical Fun technical hiccups, <laughs> sweet. Uh, so, yet again, unintended synergy, right? Uh, this time on yeah. uh, gender and sexuality, as we discussed with uh, Susan Paulson. Yeah. So that's yeah. why does this keep happening? What, uh, is, what is going on, man? It's, it's almost like there's a reason, reason, reason for me working here. <laughs> it's, it's weird, isn't it? Very odd. So, uh, who's going to be? Uh, on, who's our, uh, our final guest on this week's show? There, Sebastian. Uh, tomorrow's guest is Kamala, Indian name. Uh, I'm going to go with Thea Garajan. Yeah, Thea Garajan. Exactly. Uh, she will talk about her article in Wired about um, how India is not prepared for uh, global warming and the brutal uh, heat waves that are coming and wrecking everything. And we're, uh, we're doing great for you on the way here on your bike today either. Uh. <laughs> That's a good, a good quote to leave on. I'm your bitter blind broke. A Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast and live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today is Sebastian Vopper. Uh, thank you, Sebastian, for producing as well as for today's edition of Sub Soapbox. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.
Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>